Welcome everybody to this uh, panel on gang culture on screen and in print, um, which is hosted by the Department of Geography uh, as part of the LSE's sixth literary uh, festival. Uh, my name is uh, Gareth Jones. I'm Professor of Urban Geography uh, at the LSE, and I'll be uh, chair uh, for the presentations and the post-presentation uh, discussion, uh, which will be held with uh, Penny Walcock and Andrew Davies. Uh, before I introduce uh, the speakers more formally, uh, I'd just like to alert you to a couple of things. Uh, firstly, um, Copies of Andrew Davis's books uh, are on sale outside at the bookstall, and I'm sure if you uh, catch him and drag him to the ground, he'll uh, be prepared to uh, sign any copies uh, for you. Uh, secondly, uh, that uh, Penny Walcock's film, uh, One Mile Away, uh, will be screened, I think, in this very room on Saturday as part of the closure of the Literary Festival at 7 o'clock. Uh, and you're all obviously very welcome to, to come uh, for that. Um, more mundanely, um, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, firstly, this event should be uh, recorded and later available as a podcast online. Um, let me just put should uh, in, uh, in italics in your mind. Uh, we wait to see. Uh, but more certainly, perhaps, I can ask you to switch any mobile phones to silent. And if you understand and are keen on such things, um, by all means, uh, tweet and Twitter away uh, whilst the panel uh, uh, continues. And the hashtag, whatever this means, uh, is down there, LSE uh, Litfest. Finally, to uh, the panel itself and uh, our speakers. Uh, for many people, and not least, of course, uh, the members themselves, um, gangs are a prominent feature of everyday uh, urban life. Um, they often conduct and are accused um, of a range of antisocial and criminal behaviours and have become, I think particularly in, in recent years, a, in the UK at least, a symbol for any number of social, political and cultural changes. Rarely um, co uh, political, social and cultural changes uh, for the good, at least in uh, certain people's uh, minds. Um, often deployed as a stigma uh, by politicians and the media and we could recall Londoners at least amongst you how uh, in the very quick aftermath of the 2011 London riots the language uh, which began to appropriate the term gang um, very quickly uh, developed uh, what were rioters became gangs within about 24-48 hours uh, in some media in the process young people became youth uh, and in the words of the UK Minister of Justice, Kenneth Clark, who I assume is probably not in the room, and the Mayor of London, likewise, um, the rioters became, quote, delinquents, a feral underclass, and members of, gang and members of gangs. Uh, media images um, following the 2011 riots uh, focused in, on particular rioters, and in particular, rioters who were black, and suggested some organised intent by using this term gang, I would suggest, uh, behind these attacks on Specsavers and Dixons. 
Gangs, therefore, um, are familiar subjects for media, as well as, of course, for uh, uh, print media, as well as for films. Um, And importantly, rarely are they subjects um, and represented in those media in ways of their own choosing. Um, Yet we do have a few um, intriguing insights of how uh, gang members' awarenesses of their image um, and how they are portrayed uh, across media. Not perhaps the best and strongest empirical source for this point, but I'm often reminded of Martin Scorsese's film uh, Gangs of New York here. And for me, one of the kind of standout scenes in it, when Bill the Butcher, Daniel Day-Lewis, is talking to Amsterdam Vallon, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, on how he's managed to live to the ripe age of 47. And he says the following. You know how I stayed, to al- stayed alive this long? All these years, fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts. Somebody steals from me, I cut off his hands. He offends me, I cut out his tongue. He rises against me, I cut off his head. Stick it on a pike, raise it high for all to see. That's what preserves the order of things, fear. The book is loosely based on, uh, the film, sorry, is based very loosely on a book called The Gangs of New York by Herbert Asprey, uh, which appeared in 1928. Asprey was acutely aware of the need to take gangs seriously as part of uh, uh, his inquiry, but also that gangs sell, their images are powerful, and his book became a bestseller in the United States uh, through the late 1920s and early 1930s. In very sharp contrast to a book that appeared just a few months before, which for academics is the seminal book really on the gang, Frederick Thrasher from University of Chicago uh, and his book published in 1927, The Gang, a Study of 1,313 Gangs in Chicago. Why I draw attention to Thrasher and indeed to some extent Asprey is because as academics, and I'm the academic to some extent here uh, within the sort of sociological tradition, Thrasher is identified with the Chicago School of Sociology, probably one of our most important sort of uh, source points for the study of gangs uh, in the city. But he was only actually at Chicago for four years. And he left in 1930, and he went to New York and spent most of the rest of his career, another 30-plus years, at the uh, University of New York, NYU, in not in sociology, but setting up a media studies program. And he worked for most of this time in media and media studies, looking at and identifying the representations of young people and the interactions uh, of of violence uh, within media. So what I'm kind of drawing at here is the, the kind of more empirical study of gangs, Uh, the media representation of gangs, if you like, and possibly our own personal experience of gangs, uh, either from the inside or or from the out, all to some extent lead us uh, into the same direction. This interest in the representation of young people in gang situations. We should be um, interested and we should also be concerned, I think, as a point of departure for this panel, uh, about how and why gangs are favoured subjects of films and of print books. 
how they are portrayed and how these representations can be considered accurate or realistic of, of real life. And in particular then also how these presentations uh, in turn affect our wider perceptions of young people in society, young people in or outside of gang life. And I hope to some extent these are topics which we can uh, develop uh, in the presentations and in the post-presentation uh, discussion with uh, questions and answers. We've got two uh, speakers, and I'm going to uh, introduce them in uh, reverse uh, order. Uh, Penny Walcock um, is a writer, uh, director, uh, and particularly maker of documentaries, uh, television, fiction, films, and also directs opera, um, which sounds daunting. Um, uh, her fiction film, uh, One Day, uh, released in 2009, uh, it was about one day in the life of a gang member uh, on the streets of, uh, of Birmingham. And uh, her follow-up uh, documentary film, uh, One Mile Away, which was released in, in 2013, I think I have that right, um, was taking this sort of subject on in a different genre, if you like, about the peace process uh, between two rival gangs uh, in an inner-city area of, of Birmingham. Um, our first speaker, um, however, is Andrew Davis, who uh, teaches modern social history at the University of Liverpool, and as I've already kind of broadcast to you, uh, is a book uh, writer and author, uh, in particular uh, of two uh, key books, The Gangs of Manchester, uh, published in 2008, uh, and his recent book, uh, the City of Gangs, Glasgow and the Rise of the British Gangster, uh, published in 2013. So, Andrew, thank you. Thanks, Gareth. Um, my presentation today is um, very, very much on Glasgow. Um, actually, only saw this for the first time. 10 minutes ago the paperback so thrilled to see to see that um, the presentation the two main parts are on gangs in newsprint and then gangs in fiction um, so I'm not going to talk very much about film um, here and I will be talking about Glasgow in the 20s and 30s because of all Britain cities, it was Glasgow during this period that was most readily associated with gangs. The British press at that time, and interestingly to me, local as well as national newspapers, paid absolutely rapt attention to the careers of American gangsters. So the exploits of Al Capone, Jack Diamond, John Dillinger and others were covered in an amount of detail that surprised me when I first saw it. And against this backdrop, Glasgow, by the early 1930s, was very commonly referred to through the shorthand the Scottish Chicago. In many ways, this parallel was ludicrous. If we look at homicide rates in the two cities, uh, gang-related killings, there is no comparison. And yet, for many journalists, the, the, the parallel was absolutely irresistible. This was the case for journalists within Glasgow, but equally for journalists writing out of Edinburgh and out of London. So, what do we actually find um, when we go back as social historians and study Glasgow in the 20s and 30s? 
What I uncovered in my research were very widespread reports of fighting between rival gangs in which weapons were routinely used, but to inflict severe, non-fatal injuries. These conflicts were partly territorial, but they were also partly sectarian. And in the east end of Glasgow, most gangs were nominally Protestant or nominally Catholic. Gangs were also very widely associated with protection rackets, albeit modest in scale. Some of these gangs also functioned as networks of thieves, their members involved in housebreaking, smash-and-grab raids, insurance frauds some of them linked to illegal gambling rings and illicit bookmakers. To me, it's interesting as a historian that we find more evidence of what we might term gang culture in Glasgow during these decades than we can find in Birmingham or Liverpool or London or Manchester. So why Glasgow? I offer three explanations, I think, um, linked together um, to try and answer that. First is what today we'd call de-industrialisation. The collapse of Britain's staple industries during the interwar decades hit Glasgow earlier and much, much harder than the other major British cities. So there was chronic, long-term unemployment across very large swathes of Glasgow, especially the poorer working-class tenement districts. And I think the layout of those districts is a factor here as well. Glasgow had a far greater density of population. People are crammed much closer together in Glasgow than in other British cities, partly because um, so many people are living in tenements rather than in terraced houses. So when people congregate in Glasgow on street corners, they're congregating in much bigger groups than their counterparts in somewhere like Manchester. And the third, and for me more sinister factor, is the persistence of religious sectarianism. Ratcheted up during the 1920s, fuelled by militant elements in the Church of Scotland, whose anti-Irish propaganda was picked up by sections of the local press within Glasgow. And this sectarianism was increasingly manifested in local electoral politics as well, notably in the rise, mercifully brief, of the virulently anti-Catholic Scottish Protestant League. So Glasgow's a turbulent place in the 20s and 30s, and for me the gangs grow out of that. So, um, to turn to our main theme today then, gangs in the media, and first of all, gangs in newsprint. We can see very clearly during the 1920s and 1930s a commercial orchestration of fears of crime. Then, as now, sensational stories about gangs make great copy. In Glasgow, during the 30s, there were three rival evening papers competing to get the best gang stories, the best scoops. As well as the evening papers, there were some very um, big-selling tabloids that covered the whole of Scotland, Glasgow included. And I'll show a few images in a moment from a couple of those. So there's more or less saturation coverage of gangs in the Glasgow press and in the Scottish national press. Why are these stories so compelling? Simply, um, first and foremost, their appeal as stories... Most of the coverage in the period that I work on is derived from trial reports. So these were easy stories for journalists to gather. 
presenting colourful casts of characters and judicial pronouncements that served very well as morality tales for journalists. Trials before judges at the High Court in Glasgow were reported in minute detail, often over three or four days, three or four editions, with the reporting gaining momentum over successive days. These are episodes of high drama as well. Gang stories are nothing if not vivid, and they're cast by the press as melodramatic. Evil villains versus crusading cops, magistrates and judges. And of course, gang stories are tragedies as well. This is um, a report from Glasgow in 1934, following what um, became known as a gang (coughs) murder. This is an early report in the immediate aftermath of the incidents. Um, From the suburb editor's point of view, he's had a ball with this. Um, lots of stock elements um, here but the evening news is making its pitch for its exclusive James Dalziel, the dead man evening news exclusive picture and here um, sadly a family snap the four children of the man who's been killed that night these are very, very powerful as human interest stories. And I was surprised to find, as early as the late 1920s and 1930s, journalists doorstepping the families of people who'd been involved in incidents like this. A second image, now from a Scottish national paper, it seemed to me almost Dickensian when I first saw it. I don't know how well you can see it, slightly faded sepia um, but this is the East End of Glasgow in 1930. The street is called the Drygate, and it's a district that was hardly ever glimpsed, even in Glasgow's papers, except in crime stories. It's incredibly rare that you see a photograph of a street like this in 1930. So I've talked about commercial orchestration of crime, but there's a lot of news management by the police as well. When David Cameron issued that clarion call in 2011 for an all-out war on gangs and gang culture, he was actually using a phrase that I first encountered from this man, Glasgow's chief constable in the 1930s, who, guess what, declared a war on gangs twice. Um, I think the war on gangs, like the war on drugs, is one destined not to be be won. Silito, highly ambitious as a chief constable and very conscious of his image in the papers. Particularly close relationship with the Scottish Daily Express, which had launched out of Glasgow in the late 1920s. And the Scottish Daily Express cast Silito as a kind of folk hero. Lots of the stories, which I think must rest on briefings that senior officers had applied to, to journalists, they weren't really news events at all, they were warnings. So what appears as a news item is actually a warning from the police to the gangs. We know who you are, we're coming after you. But presented as a news item, which I found interesting. And to pick up something that Gareth said earlier, in the 1930s as much as in 2011, gang stories then served as a funnel into which all kinds of disparate anxieties were poured. Editorial commentaries and feature articles, of which there were many, provided opportunities to take stock. So editors asked, what did these gangs tell us about the condition of the city, the wider state of society? They dwelled on unemployment, on the problems of slum housing, 
but also vehemently on the perceived parental failings among the families of the poor. One of Cameron's themes, of course, flagged um, powerfully in, in 2011. And they talked about Americanization. I see this as part of an ongoing conversation about class. There was some sympathy in these stories for the plight of the unemployed. There's an enormous hostility and even revulsion as well. I've recently belatedly been reading Chavs by Owen Jones. And what I see in my 1930s reports, something very, very similar um, as um, ways of talking negatively about working class people. And and there's a scapegoating of (coughs) Glasgow's Irish Catholic community that runs alongside that, that reinforces it and gives it that ethnic Inflection. Gang members were only very rarely given opportunities to speak for themselves. So largely they were demonised and seen by the reading public only in that one dimension as criminals. In the book, I've tried as hard as I can to give a more rounded picture. I've used memoirs where possible. I've used glimpses of domestic lives, sometimes gleaned through poor relief case files, which can tell you an awful lot that you don't see in newspapers and interestingly um, a key source for me was background reports on prisoners compiled by police officers and um, sometimes by prison warders ahead of trials and often giving a very different picture of young people from what was said about them in court and for me one of the key things in, 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 in the book here is the sheer ordinariness of gang members lives something that simply wasn't seen in the newspapers. Now, one person who did get a platform um, was this man, Billy Fullerton, um, the leader for several years of a gang, the Bridgeton Billy Boys, as its name suggests, a Protestant gang. Its name derived as a homage to William of Orange. This is the gang whose song, which was already sung on Orange Walk in the ni- walks in the 1920s, has got Glasgow Rangers supporters into so much trouble with football. S- Um, authorities in recent years this is the song about being up to an ex in Fenian blood that his followers sung and that Rangers followers sing, some of them today Um, Fullerton after repeated bouts of imprisonment and no little um, intimidation by the police um, declared his, his resolution to go straight in 1932 and he then gave a number of interviews as um, an ex gangster Hence the quote tucked away at the bottom there. The former boss of the Billy Boys says, it's a mug's game. So now he's posing as somebody giving, giving lessons. Back to America. Um, lots and lots of journalists commented on how Glasgow's gang members styled themselves on the stars of the classic Hollywood gangster movies. And in the book, we've put Paul Mooney in Scarface alongside Fullerton, for me it's very powerful when we first lined the two photographs up. And here's Fullerton now appearing as a witness um, for the defence in a trial, Eastern Police Court of Glasgow 1932. He's being um, cross-examined here. And the person cross-examining him has embarrassed him by holding up a story with his <coughs> kind of um, memoirs across the centre pages, you know, My Life as Boss of the Billy Boys. And so Fullerton is asked, are you the self-confessed hero? And he replies, I am. Well, he couldn't really have denied it. But now the kind of interesting um, phrasing, and in your own sphere, you're as powerful as the Al Capones and Spike Donnellys of America, this insistent cross-reference to Chicago. 
and Fullerton's plaintive retort, I was, but I want to knit to lead a new life. In, in Fullerton's um, interviews in the early 30s, I see lots and lots of echoes with some criminological work that John Pitts has done with young people in recent years in London. There's a book called Re- Reluctant Gangsters, where lots of young people say to John Pitts, it was much easier getting into a gang than it is to get out. Because now my face is known, now I'm notorious, I can't just walk away. People are still coming after me. And Fullerton is making exactly that plea in 1932. This is an image that um, accompanied um, Fullerton's life story, and he looks as if he's been bashed about quite badly there by his own account. People were waylaying him every time he stepped out of his front door when he came back from prison. His persecutors included the Kent Star. This is a Catholic gang from the east end of Glasgow. A very, very rare photograph, in my experience at least. It's taken in the aftermath of um, court proceedings where eight of the gang's members have been liberated from a murder charge. So they're held aloft here like they've just won the Scottish Cup, but they've actually just walked clear from court that day. Now, Glasgow in fiction, um, just briefly. Glasgow's reputation then as a gang city was cemented in 1935 by the publication of an extraordinary novel called No Mean City, co-authored by Alexander MacArthur, a baker from the Gorbals in Glasgow, and an English journalist, one Herbert Kingsley Long. The novel tells the story of a gang leader and a so-called razor king. And that kind of label has stuck in Glasgow for generations. The plot echoes um, the classic gangster movies. It's a young man's rise and then his inevitable fall, told against a parallel storyline of a law-abiding friend and a law-abiding brother, straight out of the kind of classic Hollywood gangster movie um, plots. For its time, though, for a novel, it was shockingly graphic in its depictions of violence and especially of sexual violence. It was a spectacular commercial success and it received a good deal of critical acclaim as well. Much of that derived from its perceived authenticity. So the publisher, Longmans, made a lot of MacArthur's credentials as a long-term resident of the Gorbals. The novel was serialised over 13 lengthy instalments in the London edition of the Daily Express to the lasting chagrin of Glasgow City Council. It says it's taken generations to recover from the damage that that did to Glasgow's reputation in English eyes. The Express sent an investigative reporter out on a tour of what the paper labelled the mean cities of Britain. Went to Birmingham, to Leeds, Sheffield, Cardiff, Liverpool and London. This investigator found lots that appalled him, especially in the slum housing courts of Liverpool, but he could find no equivalent to the gang culture depicted in No Mean City. There's a few pub fights in Sheffield, but that was about it. Really interesting and stark contrast. The biggest critic of No Mean City within Glasgow was um, the man in this image, the Reverend J. Cameron Petty. Um, a Church of Scotland minister, somewhat out of sync with some of his fellow ministers in this period, um, much more socially progressive. And in 1930, um, he set out to make contact with the gang based nearest to his church. 
There's churches in the Gorbals, the biggest gang in the district, the Southside Stickers. After some, some difficulty, Peddy manages to arrange a meeting and he persuades a group of young men to come to his church. And he asks them, would you be willing to disband the Southside Stickers and reform the gang as a social club? And to his astonishment, they say, yeah, all right then. All kinds of activities are sponsored by this club. Um, predictably, they include boxing, lots of kind of indoor entertainment as well. And when the stickers organise the club's first Christmas dinner dance, local dignitaries pile in, and Scottish Daily Express covers it now as a good news story. But as Peddy realised, what the stickers really needed was work. And sorry, I think we've lost an image um, there. The image. Um, which is gone, is of this same group of young men chopping wood in a factory that Peddy has set up for them. As Peddy sees it, it's work that they really need. It's work that will mend the conditions that he's seeking to combat. Sadly, this fails. One of the difficulties that Peddy had was sponsorship, but the biggest difficulty that he and his counterparts elsewhere in Glasgow faced was prejudice. There are very moving stories from Petty's counterparts in places like Govan, telling of how they met with derision at every turn when they sought to promote schemes like this. The response from that both Protestant and Catholic church leaders got was, why bother? These young men are beyond help. They're not worth the effort. And maybe that demonisation in the newspapers over a decade beforehand had done its work. To conclude, um, does this history matter? Well, clearly, I think it does. I'm not the first historian to say that our present anxieties surrounding gangs and knife crime are not new. I was inspired by that wonderful book by Jeff Pearson, Hooligan, published back in 1983. But that recognition that Pearson made that gangs are not new is too often lost in media and political debate. I think we saw that only too clearly in 2011. In Cameron's call for a war on gangs, I'm always nervous when prime ministers declare war, but all the more so on an enemy within. And then David Starkey. I transcribed two days ago that rant by David Starkey on Newsnight um, on 13th of August. Um, and what astonished me, really, was the, the lack of historical awareness from one of our most prominent public historians, presenting these events as though they were somehow a product of, of post-Second World War immigration, as though they were somehow unparalleled. And historians should not be saying that. For me, the lack of a historical perspective makes it too easy to offer shallow explanations, to blame everything on gangster rap, as politicians are prone to do. That might be politically expedient because I think it steers us away from very difficult <coughs> questions about inequality and inequality of um, opportunity. But for me, these shallow, ahistorical moralisings are no basis for policy. Thanks. here to tell a, a more recent story and I was going to talk about two films that I've made in inner city Birmingham in and around gang life over the last seven years 
Um, and they've sort of tread a funny line between the reality of the streets and, and the reality in the film, and some of the times it's been quite difficult to know really which is which. Um, I went to Birmingham in 2007 to research... Uh, I wanted to make a fiction film about um, inner-city gang life, and I knew, because I'd made a film about Shakespeare there years before, that there were two very established gangs in Birmingham. The Johnsons, who are from B6, and uh, the Burgers from B21, and you don't want to be making those signs in the wrong place. Um, and... They're all kinds of... They've been going since sort of the early 90s. And over the years, you know, you talk to some of the older guys and say, how did it really start? And it usually seems to come down to a story about a fight over a woman and somebody died. And then people who'd previously had been friends, uh, because the, the Burgers and the Johnsons um, are from the Jamaican community in Birmingham. A lot of people are actually related. They just live in different areas. Um, people who'd previously been friends became enemies, and then more people died, and then nobody really remembers anymore, but, you know, it's because of the deaths that the, that the war continues. So um, I decided to go there, and some people, you know, wonder whether in order to be a gang member or to be considered to be in a gang, what you have to do, whether you have to sort of do certain things or there's some kind of entry requirements and then you get a sort of ticket or a badge and you're allowed to be a gang member. But actually it's really, really simple. You just have to be born somewhere. So if you're born in an area, then you might be very heavily involved and you might carry weapons and go on punitive raids and so on, or you might never do anything, but it still wouldn't be safe for you to wander into a different area. And how do people know that you're from the other area because everybody knows who the young guys are in their own place. So if you see somebody that, whose face you don't recognise, you know that they shouldn't be there. Um, and although you know these particular um, two crews who I have been working with and alongside for about seven years from the Jamaican community, obviously this is nothing to do with ethnicity, you know, as Andrew is saying, it's entirely to do with other more complex things to do with social exclusion and so on. So I was told by a youth worker in Hackney about a year and a half ago that there are 29 gangs in Hackney. I wandered around um, Southland, well I didn't wander around because actually he wasn't safe for him to leave the car, but around North um, Clapham and Streatham and literally one side of the other of the road with one crew and another crew. <coughs> and there was um, the, the police a few years ago arrested all the, the, the leaders of what they thought were the, the, the PDC and the 28th or whatever they're calling Peckham, thinking that they would solve the problem and actually what they created was... Um, a lot of internecine fighting in which it's splintered into smaller and smaller groups. And so it's, in some cases, it's literally a few blocks where people feel that they're, that they're safe and that is their world. Um, and this morning I was with uh, a young guy from an estate near Collindale and he's making a film which I'm kind of mentoring them for London Life, which is the new Evening Standard channel. And his parents had moved two minutes away from the Graham estate, which is a big estate. 
And that two minutes has made the difference between him being the person that's making the film and all of the people that he grew up with, all of whom are involved in road life, have friends who've been stabbed and shot, and um, would expect have all been in jail and every single member of their family have been in jail. And he said, what difference does that two minutes make? And they said, well, you wouldn't be holding that, you'd be holding this. And I leave it to you to decide what this might be that, uh, that the others are having to carry. And in fact, one of them said in the clip that I saw this morning, he said, I'd rather the police <coughs> caught, caught me with a knife than the enemy catch me without one. And that's, the, that's their reality. So when I started um, researching for, for the film that became a fiction film one day, I started on the B6 site kind of randomly and everybody assumed that I was working for the police because, rationally, the only people who go into an area, and particularly if you're white or you're an outsider, are on some kind of punitive mission. So I would either be a social worker coming to take people's children from them or I would be working for the police. And, and, and that's people's reality. And actually... Um, Dylan, who I'll introduce in a minute, I remember when... I mean, you were... 26 or 27 we went on a walk and we spent two hours together said it was the longest that he'd spent with a white person since he was at school with a teacher which is a really horrific thing to be saying about you know the country that we live in um so on the johnson side i had a lot of trouble getting anybody to trust me for obvious reasons and people thought it was part of some very elaborate conspiracy that I was pretending to make a film while actually you know getting all this information about people so that I could stitch them up and and they would all end up going to jail um but I met one person Chaba who liked me and he'd seen one of my films even though I attempted to give people copies of my films I was saying google me and you'll see I'm a filmmaker they, they thought it was a sort of cover story and the West Midland police are the most corrupt police force in the country and quite capable of kind of cooking up something like that. So, you know, they, it, it wasn't that irrational, really. But um, Shaba was the only person that trusted me and something happened around that time where the, it's not really that structured, but Dizzle Dylan, who was sort of like the top guy of the Johnsons, was on the run at the time and actually he's in Long Larton now, I'm still in touch with him and because this coincided with the police looking for him and me turning up, people put two and two together and made something else happen, so I drifted over the front line which is not, it's a kind of blurry line, I mean the Birchfield Road is a dual carriageway and it's not really that simple because Newtown, which is the Johnson area, is actually a on the other side of the road and I met um, Dylan who's here with me today who I hope will not just be talked about but speak for himself you know and Dylan and I connected and also I met him in a better way you know I met him through his uncle because I knew a filmmaker called John Acumfra who'd made a film about the Hansworth riots in 1985 and John knew me and therefore Van Lee Burke, who's Dylan's uncle, is a photographer, introduced me to Dylan. So it was like there was some... I had some provenance, I suppose, as, as the kind of art historians say, which kind of, you know, plus the fact that we just had a connection. And 
So I, had, I, I prospered more on the burger side than the Johnson side. And I had always said that if I raised money to make the film, I would come back and I would cast it on the streets. And I did that. And obviously, Shaba on the Johnson side and a couple of people then thinking, oh, she really is a filmmaker, they wanted to be in the film as well. But at that time, it was impossible to have people from both sides in the same film. And people said, if there's somebody from the other side, in one frame of this film, there'll be blood on the streets. And, um, and Dylan and I actually did make a, an attempt at suggesting that there could be a ceasefire while we were making the film, and it was just shut down straight away, and it didn't happen. So I had to choose, and I made the film on the burger side. And I then had to construct two... Um, fictional gangs and, and, and but shoot it all on the same side and we had to have auditions for the film on the Soho Road which is deep in burger territory which meant that no Johnsons were going to turn up for the audition and that's what we had to do because otherwise it, it would have led to trouble so it was sort of all the time there was this feeling of treading this line but being in this liminal space in between fiction and, and reality and when I made the film there's a, a sort of opening sequence which uh, is, is a sort of war song with the two different crews kind of charging down these narrow alleyways. People who watched it couldn't distinguish one side from the other because everybody looked the same. They were all young men who dressed the same, had the same swagger, spoke the same. You know, how are we supposed to know? And although there are colours that, that certain crews associate with and, and the burgers kind of is red and the, the Johnson's blue, people don't really deck themselves out, you know, like those things you see of the Crips and the Bloods in real life. People don't walk around like that. But we had to do reshoots. We put bandanas on people that were um, yellow and purple in order for people to understand what it was that they were seeing. So we ended up doing something that's a film trope and having to do it ourselves, this sort of cliché, in order to, to visually make it understandable. Um, and, of course, there's a reason why people are the same people, because it's a lot easier to turn on the person who's next to you than to actually think about what it is that's oppressing you and has put you in that situation. It reminds me of being a revolutionary Trotskyist many years ago in my youth where we spent all our time fighting other people who were almost exactly the same as us because it was easier than kind of taking on capitalism, you know. And um, so the, the, the real enemy is too big and too difficult, so people, you know, fight amongst themselves. So we made the film and... Um, and then, of course, everybody on, on the Johnson side by this time, although there were still some people who still thought that I'd made the film in order to come back and do some, something else, you know, that was going to get people into trouble. But most, most people did realise that I was who I said I was. And a year after we'd sort of finished the film, or maybe a bit less, actually, I got a phone call from Shaba, who was on the Johnson side, and he'd had an encounter one night where he'd gone to get a drink and he'd found himself surrounded with a, a group of burgers and he thought, I've had it, you know. I, as he put it, he, I'm going to get fucked up, which meant he was going to get stabbed or shot. And he had this sort of moment of clarity where he looked at the 
the, the young man who's most excited about doing something to him. And he said, you know, I didn't wake up this morning thinking that I wanted to kill you, and you didn't wake up this morning thinking you wanted to kill me. I don't know you. If I've done something to you, go ahead, do what you have to do. But if not, let me go. And one of the older guys who actually shared a cell with in jail said, Chubb's all right, let him go. And that's called getting a pass. So instead of going home and thinking that was lucky, he called me and he said, you know, maybe if I can get a pass, maybe everyone will get a pass. Um, maybe it's time to stop the beef, have a truce, will you help me? And kind of, it's in a way completely insane, the middle class white woman from North London is the only person that he knew who knew people, as he put it, who you know them geezers on the other side because the Johnsons call the burgers geezers and the, and the burgers call the Johnsons the boydom. Um, will you help me? And I not knowing what I was getting myself in for, said, uh, of course, and I called Dylan. And instead of just saying, of course, straight away, Dylan did go, (laughs) he has children, he has sons, and he dreads getting that call. So he said, of course I will. So, and Shabba said at that time, he said, we should document it. So I said, I'll help you anyway. I can talk to people and go back with the forwards because I was the only person who could go from one side to the other. But he said, no, we should, we should document it on film so that it, 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 it's a testament that we've done it and not the police and not all these kind of phony gang projects that are being funded who don't do anything. Um, so I'm going to show you just the, the trailer for the film and then maybe some of you, if you haven't seen it, would, can see it tomorrow. It's all over on, online as well. But, and then talk a little bit about it. The police were extremely disruptive all the way through, followed us around, took me to court, tried to get our rushes off us. And, you know, there's a level at which you have to wonder, you know, exactly what their agenda is. Um, And we had to do all kinds of things in the film as well. When when Dylan and Shabba first meet in the hotel room, in the first cut, just looked like two very nice young guys who were just a little bit nervous and got on very well with each other. So we had to shoot some links before that where Dylan was explaining how anxious it was. I mean, none of us slept because they trusted me that I wasn't going to set them up, but I didn't know if one of them wouldn't be followed and there wouldn't be a kind of shootout. I mean, it seems sort of crazy in a way, but it was very frightening, wasn't it, at that time, Dylan? And um, it was sort of almost as if by talking about truth or talking about how in a way empty of meaning in a sense the, the gang war was that it, it kind of lost its potency so that when the riots happened and as all over the country a lot of young people came together and were fighting the police or looting or whatever it is that people were doing because in Birmingham there'd been this narrative about stopping the beef beforehand at the end of the four days people thought well what, why are we fighting you know, and there, were, there was a different story that could be told. And actually, I think the riots were great, you know, because they certainly unlocked something that, that we'd been struggling to do for a long time. And because the, the gang thing, which is very much also what um, Andrew said, that it's a symptom and not the cause, the underlying causes are obviously massive 
structural poverty, inequality, lack of education, institutionalized racism, and the discarding of people that we've got no use for, you know, and these awful terms, the, the underclass and the lump and proletariat, it's all very disparaging, you know. And the thing that I love about the underclass is that they don't just lie down and take it and go, yes, we'll just sit here very quietly, you know, until you can send us down another mine. You know, people are very disruptive and there's a sense in which a lot of that, fortunately for those who love the status quo, people mostly turn on each other and turn their rage and despair on each other. But every now and then it erupts out of that and it spills out onto the streets into a riot that you know, lasts for a few days. And we had in the film a little clip from 1985 where the chief constable is saying, this is criminality, pure and simple, which is virtually the same phrase that, that David Cameron um, uses about... You know, the, the, uh, obviously something that has a much deeper meaning, and if we don't sit up and take notice, I think, you know, we're in deep trouble. And one of the most interesting things to me is how much what happens on the very edges mirrors what happens in the centre, so that in the hood, there are... I knew it to have a lot of words about snow, for, for, the, for snow. Um, in the hood, there's a ton of words for money, Money, peas, paper, don, skrilla, you know, you can, can go on and on. And there's this sort of, it, it's almost exactly, you know, the kind of phenomenal greed and thieving that goes on at the centre on a much vaster scale is sort of reproduced in a way that just gets people locked up rather than um, given bonuses. And when I see the, the trailer, it makes me really sad because four of the men in the film are now in jail doing very long sentences. Um, one of them, 16 years, for something that he didn't do, which his co-defendant admitted to and had blood all over him and other people said he was just standing there. Two others got 29 and 35 years. I don't know if you remember, there was that scene where the people were shooting at a police helicopter. Now, obviously, that is a mad and stupid thing to do, but nobody was killed, nobody was even hurt, and they got 29 and 35 years, which is about 10 times as much as, you know, murderers and paedophiles get. I mean, it really is kind of astonishing. And the last one, who's Zimbo in there, who's going 16 cent down for packing a gun in that rap, he was um, looking through his own wallet outside a nightclub and no wallet had been reported stolen and the police um, stopped to investigate. He went mad and he got taken to the police station. So, and I'm here talking to you and it doesn't escape my knowledge you know that obviously you know it, it it's much much more dangerous to be a young man in that community than it is to be a middle-aged white woman so in a way gangs are about nothing and in another way they're about everything because most of us walk around our cities oblivious to the fact that to other people these are battlefields and I live in Barnsbury, opposite to where Tony Blair used to live. But there's another reality where I'm living halfway between the Cali Road Boys and the N1s. And actually, for those boys, it's not cool to cross the road, you know, and that, that's their reality. So, you know, the, just to finish by saying, so, you know, is making these, these kind of films perpetuating stereotypes about young black men? And I have been, you know, obviously accused of that many times. 
And I was saying earlier, you know, on the one hand, people going, who perhaps are racist, saying that my favourite was I'm an anti-white, senile old hag, which was uh, supporting scum on the streets, that's me. Um, but also, <laughs> last year, there was a sort of three-day hate campaign on Facebook by a couple of men who said that I was a white woman making a career out of exploiting people in their community and I was being sponsored by Honda to do it, whereas actually I ended up with an unpaid mortgage and a heart condition after being involved with that. But I would stand by it that it's important because I think the alternative is that we walk around kind of in the Truman Show, each in our own bubble, and pretending that there's not a parallel world in which a generation of young men are being obliterated. And going back to the kind of football analogy, when people realised that there was money to be made out of football, football hooliganism was um, dealt with, and it doesn't exist anymore. And this is a problem that can be solved if there's the, the political will to do it. Thank you, uh, uh, Andrew and Penny. Um, I'm sure I've got a whole list of questions, but the, uh, the remaining time available to us is not about my questions. Um, hopefully it will be about some of yours uh, and any other comments that you might like to make. We've got a, uh, a roving microphone or a person roving it. I don't think microphones themselves rove. Um, and uh, if you could uh, sort of... Uh, either make a comment or, or address your question to one or ideally of course both of the speakers that would be marvellous uh, down here in the front to smooth yeah it's interesting uh, the, the whole the whole motif of gangs in films I mean West Side Story was very much about about gangs I'm just wondering your reaction um, I also was insulted on Facebook <laughs> somebody said from the Guardian I happened to say something on their web on their uh, their Facebook page and Two people wrote back, bugger off, Sandra. <laughs> so not everybody has manners or is, can engage decently in um, interaction. How would you... I don't really kind of know where you're coming from. In other words, as a journalist who's now age 70, I've not made any more than six or $7,000 or pounds my entire life. Now, I never took anyone to task for it. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I don't go around with a knife uh, taking other people's money or, or, or whatever. So I don't really know how, what you're trying to defend by seeming, seeming to imply that because these people, because gangs don't have a, a silver spoon, they're entitled to behave in an antisocial way. Well, I think that you have options. Like, you knew that you could be a journalist. And I, I mean, didn't I know anything. Yeah. Well, I simply persisted yeah, I because think, I believed in yeah, myself. But yeah. no one gave me any support, yeah. either financial yeah. or I never had a job. Yeah. I was always freelance. No one ever gave me a job. I think, yeah. I'll explain kind of where Penny's coming from. Stand up, Sorry, Penny. I needed to end off with something that made the time sort of one mile away, and I was a star of one day in one day. You see, when you grow up where I come from, now I grew up in Hansworth. I went to school as a young black man. I was excluded from the age of 12. So college and all them kind of things was an option because I don't know how to, I know how to conduct myself in them places. So when I'm on the streets and nobody's looking out for me, like I said, I was a 12 child, so you have to understand as a child, child, they're going to make mistakes and they need guidance and need somebody around them. 
But when there's nobody else to help you and you've just been left, my mum has to go to work to pay her bills. My dad was sick, so he wasn't around. The streets have took me in and the rest of society just left me. So I've become a gang member. Now I've got this marker on my name, on my back. So once I've got that mark everywhere I go, whether it be court, whether it be this place, whether it be that place, I've got this, I've got this on my back. He's a gang member. He hangs around with them. So for me, it was very difficult to this day. I find it hard to get work or try, hard, hard to do anything, basically, because of that, what I've had on my, my, that name that I've been tagged with. So that's where Penny was coming from with it. It's more difficult for us because as a young black man and you ain't got no education, you, ain't, you never grew up in that. I don't know that world. I don't know this world. Well, I went to school with Nazis. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so I didn't go... But the thing is, I didn't go to school because I was excluded from school and I wasn't given another chance. Mm. I had to deal with it. I think it's about options and that for, for young men in the hood, and the hood is a state of mind more than a place... People think that either you can be a gangster or you can be a rapper or you can be a footballer and that is it. The option of being a dentist or a sound recorder or anything else simply mm. is not in it's not available. It's, it's not, not it's not a reality. And of course it could be, but that it's a bubble that people grow up in where criminality, mm. if you're not gonna be the footballer or the rapper, and actually you say to people, there's a zillion things you could do. It's not just about money, as you say. You know, it's about kind of having uh, having options, and those options are somehow cut off when people are living in hermetically sealed worlds. I mean, both both of you in your talks in different ways, and obviously across different time periods, have talked about this getting out of the gang and how difficult. And what you've just also alluded to, essentially, is that how and how far you can ever be an ex-gang member. And I think in some of the areas in sort of Mexico and, and elsewhere where I've worked, and only partially with, uh, with, with gang members, it, it actually very much echoes what you've just said. So in Central America, they talk about a gang member who can leave the gang as a formal, active gang member, who won't be, then go on involved in crime or, or whatever else is, is going on. Um, but they are only ever then called what's a calmado, they're calmed. Um, and they can never be anything other than an ex-gang member. You've still got that word gang member in your profile, course, yeah. right? And, and therefore, sort of things like we take for granted, certainly at the front of the room probably, about you know, a career choice or a change of career or a change of destination or postcode or, or whatever else we might just sort of rather think, well, that's what we'll do um, for, for good or, or, or other reasons. It, it's just not available. That, that it becomes very preclusionary to, to think about changing a lifestyle beyond literally moving from one side of being to X, but there's no none ever. Um, and, and I think that's really fascinating. And the very fact that it's also kind of being talked about in the 1930s in, in Glasgow as opposed to Tegucigalpa in Honduras, I think that's, yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Can I say something in response to the, the question? The other thing that, that strikes me is that as a society, we always have choices in how we respond to what we identify as you know, bad behaviour by young people. I've looked at cases in Victorian Manchester where young people have smashed the windows of a, of a mill, they've been arrested, they've been charged with willful criminal damage, and they've been fined, and they'll go to jail in their early teens unless their families pay the fines. And then I find a case from the Bullingdon Club in the 1890s where they put through hundreds of windows in the quad at Christchurch College. Technically, it's criminal damage. And the punishment that they get is that they are temporarily sent down. So in other words, their studies are suspended. And clearly there's um, a debate taking place about what should actually 
Bidon, and a very, very senior figure in the English judicial system writes to the Times, and the Times publishes the letter in which he says, you know, these foolish young men should, should not be um, facing criminal sanction. It will be a terrible waste because they have great futures ahead of them. And they are not prosecuted. What year was this? 1894. It's in the Times newspaper. It does happen today. There's a question here. Mercifully. Um, I just wanted to ask how you sort of personally think that the sort of perpetual pattern of what's happening to these young people can be broken and whether sort of social mobility is actually a political agenda that we can pragmatically approach and, and overcome or whether it's more complex and convoluted. I, I don't think it's easy to solve these things, but if there's a political will to do it, at the moment, <laughs> the political will is to lock people up. And uh, we were talking earlier about joint enterprise, which is an, an ancient law that's been brought out where you can actually manage to um, lock up more than one person for the same crime, even though the others were simply there. So, I mean, I think locking people up is, you might as well actually gas them, you know, if you're saying we don't need these people, you know, that, that would in a way be more honest, you know, so perhaps what you can do is something else. So I think lack of social mobility, I think this is a, um, Orlando Patterson, who's a, an American academic, gave a very good description of it, which is that if, if everyone you know knows everyone else you know, uh, you, you can't you can't really move and and generally in in the in the ghetto in the hood and I've been in, in white areas as much as you know in Birmingham that's pretty much the case isn't it everyone you know knows everyone else you know so I think there are ways out of it and it is to do with education and it's complex I don't think it's something that you can do in five minutes and I'm not going to sit here and say I've got the answer to it but given that Seb this morning lives two minutes away from all the boys who became criminals, you go, well, either they were born to be criminals because there's something in the water in that area or something is going really badly wrong. And I would suspect it's that. So if the, the kid that's two minutes away can be all right and have a thriving career, why can't everybody else, you know? I've never yet met a stupid person in the hood, you know, because it's very hard to be a criminal, actually, and you have to be really living by your wits, you know. And people have very sophisticated and interesting use of language, you know. It's very vibrant, but none of that is really given, you know, any, any credit, I think. And those are transferable skills. I mean, I would think if you can sell crap, you can sell anything. You might as well, you know. Yeah, it's not just about chance, though, because there is also a culture in which people are incredibly late all the time, very reckless. It's true, isn't it? You know, we don't work the structure, like I said, yeah. like, I use that go to college and go to school and wake up in the morning. We have wake up in the morning. What so we're going to do today? Are we going to make some? We have to have. There's no. There's no. There's no structure to it. There's no. We do what we like. And yeah, but then if someone gave you a hand, like Penny has, exactly. That's that's when it becomes different. Like yeah. that, that's when yeah. the But it's it's different. difficult, you know, because that culture is not a culture of, you know, in which people will immediately, you know, turn up on time and start working if you give them a job. Yeah. It, it's not that. Yeah. And then people give up and go, well, they're all hopeless anyway. And I think it needs to be a long-term plan. 
problem that I have with the way we talk about social mobility is that it's very individualistic, isn't it? You know, and all right, you know, one person rises, but that's at the expense of the majority of people who stay behind. One of my friends um, at home always um, has the slogan on his email, rise with your class, not from it. Mm. You know, and I think if you're looking for, for solutions here, it can't be just, you know, about a couple of, of, of individuals. Mm. You know, we've got we've to think of, uh, of, of a rising up. Mm. I mean, if I just to add something very briefly, I mean, I, you, you touched upon the sort of hopelessness of, of, uh, of anti-gang programmes and, and mm-hmm. so forth, which is a, maybe a, a wider discussion. But I, I, I do wonder, to the, certainly the effectiveness of, of many of those programmes which are designed to some extent to assist with either removing people from gangs or helping a transition away from gangs, or indeed relating to the kind of wider issues about inequality and social exclusion where, where gangs are part of that, uh, that kind, kind of landscape. So only this morning, talking with my, my wife, my partner, about this panel uh, later on, and she said, oh, well, only yesterday um, I was talking to, and she's a clinical psychologist in South London, um, about somebody for whom um, we were, uh, we'd just moved, social workers had moved somebody from an area near Earlsfield I don't identify exactly where um, because he had a problem with gangs um, he, he's got a, a learning difficulty etc he's been brought into the gang and then kind of beaten up by his own gang there's a whole sort of thing about exploitation etc etc and the response was to remove him from the area and to move him to South Tooting to get him out of the gang and out of the postcode. And where did they move him? They moved him into the postcode of the gang that was fighting his home gang. He lasted 48 hours. And he came back and he said, you know what, I would prefer to be in my gang in, in Earlsfield than constantly under threat, every day under threat, by people I don't know, as part of an anti-gang rehabilitation programme in, to- in South Tooting. And you think... What is the sort of spatial awareness and knowledge of people involved in policy who are actually in the realm of expertise here? Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. They see the individual, which is great, and they see their medical and clinical conditions and social work conditions, which is great, but they don't have the spatial and historical awareness of how these situations are actually constructed and reconstruct themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mobility, I agree with uh, Andrew, is, you know, if we see it as an individual, but we have to see it within a structure... Mm-hmm that sends people back and forward into, into sort of gang life. It's, it's not a single release for which even job programmes or boxing clubs or whatever can suddenly kick you on. It can for many, but there are many pull factors in the opposite direction. Question or comments in, in the middle there? And sort of uh, Thank you. I'd just uh, like to say that was a very good talk. Uh, but I, I have a, a criticism of the panel... I think it would have been very good to have a, a gang member up with you having something to say about this. I think it would give it much more merit. Thank you. Do you want to be the token gang member on the panel? There you go. I'll take the stage. But truthfully, I grew up... I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell my story then. I grew up in Hansworth, Birmingham. That's on the B20 side of things. I don't have no cousins, no aunties, no uncles, no nothing. Well, I've, I've, my family's got cousins. Like, my mum's got a cousin, and that was Uncle Vanny who brought me, into, like, introduced me to Penny. Now, when I was growing up, I was excluded from school. So when you're excluded from school, 
you don't eat at home. Like I said, my mum has to work at 12 years old. I'm on the streets. I'm coming out every day and I've got nothing to do. I can see these guys over there. They've got the big cars, the convertibles, they've got all the jewellery. All the women seem to like all these guys, so there's a pull to it. I'm thinking to myself, well, I can't get a job right now. I'm too young to get a job and I kind of need some money because I want some new trainers and I'm kind of looking rough and my mum ain't at home, so what am I going to do throughout the day? So I start hanging around with these guys. And at first, it's nice, these guys gave me my first design of clothes. I've never seen Versace, I didn't know what Versace was. They managed to give me a Versace jacket, I think it was a hand-me-down. But at the same time, I was so grateful for this jacket and these jeans and these little bits of trainers and all these things. So really and truthfully, it brought my kind of loyalty towards the gang. And then I'm growing around and I'm, then these guys become my friends. So if anything happens to these guys, I'm 100% down to defend my, these people that have been looking after me. But these people become like family. That was my family, so that's it. If I understand about gangs, it's not a gang gang. It's not all this, this, this is your family. A lot of these guys look at this thing with their family. They will do anything to defend their family because if somebody tried to attack your son, your daughter, your aunt, you're going to try and defend them in any way you can. And that's how it is with the gang situation where I come from. But for me, like, I grew up and I kind of I had a son at 16. That was when I had my I seven boys at this present moment. I had my first son at 16. So my, my mindset was different. I was thinking, hold on. I can't really be running around trying to shoot these people. I need to make money, so I got caught up in the drugs game. And then when you caught up in the drugs game, like he says, you can be kind of, you can be used in it because now you've got the big man. He's thinking this kid's got potential. He knows how to deal with people. There's a lot of people skills. Like I said, it's a transferable skill, so I could do something else with him now. But, yeah, so, anyway, like he knows how to deal with people. It's like, it's, you know, he's it's, it's got customer relations. He knows how to deal with them, make them more feel nice and sweet. And like all of these, all these clients, all my clients are like to deal with me because they say he's a nice guy. He deals with me nice and he looks after me when I'm down or whatever. Now. So the big man understands this. So they bring you on your wing and say, you're a star, you're a star. You, are, you can make this thing happen. Give you nice jewelry, give you nice Rolexes, and give you all of these kind of things. Now, I'm really caught up in the game now. I don't, I'm thinking, yo, I'll do anything for this guy, man. These guys are looking out for making money. When I understand I'm being used, exploited is, is the world. It is exploitation. Because really and truthfully, when, when shit fucked up, I get my face kicked in. I've been in situations where I've been baseball batted in a room, the door's been locked, I've just been bam, 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 bam. Where's my money? No, it wasn't even over money. It was over being late somewhere because my mom had an operation earlier that day and I had to go and, I mean, she couldn't do the shopping on her own, so I went to have my mom out. And on that same day, the big man was saying, Yo, where you been? You're meant to be on the road, you're making this money. And I was put in a room, the door locked, and I was baseball batted up. So it's a horrible situation, but you don't know no better because, like I said, I grew into this thing. I don't know about going to work. I don't know about having a job. I don't. I see the police as my enemy. Like I said, I'm going to tell the truth. At that point, anybody that was white or not from my community, I seen as the enemy. You understand it? These people have got their ulterior motive. They're trying to bring me down. Like I said, I've got friends that are dead, friends that are doing 35 years in jail, and one person's pulled the trigger and four people have gone to jail. Do you understand it? Like, it's, it's like the odds are against us. So I'm thinking I have to stick with these guys. My loyalty was with them. And then one day I met Penny, and like I said, she gave me an opportunity, and she brought me to, she brings me to these kind of places to see other people. She brought me to, she, I've met other people, so I understand, she took me out of that environment, so I understood, hold oh, on, there's a big world out here. It's bigger than my local block, Hands of B21. It's bigger than my local postcode, but for the kids that are in there, that's their reality. They don't know nothing else. They don't know anybody else. Nobody ain't coming in there to help them because everybody's scared. The police say, yo, we use that all gang members and we're trying to get you. Yeah? The, the kids don't know what to do. It's, and then the only thing they have to turn to is these gangs. And that's how they get caught up in this gang lifestyle. And like I was saying, when people are saying, well, they've got other choices. You haven't. When you're excluded from school, you don't know nothing else. You're a child. It's not like somebody's helping you. And you have to understand that these children don't have a male father figure in their, in their life. And as a man, you're going to be looking for a male role model. So these kids are thinking, who, who do I turn to? Who do I turn to? Like I said, then you see the guy with the big jewelry, the big cars, or the women, or the money popping champagne on a normal day, the standard drive. You're thinking, well, that's a lifestyle, and I want to be like that, man. And then you aspire to that. 
not to be an academic or to be something, to have a profession, do you understand? And that's how these kids get caught up in the lifestyle. So what it is, what we need to do is make you take these kids out of the environment, bring them in. Like I said, don't exclude them from schools. Like I said, the kids are kids. You can't kick a child out. He doesn't know no better. He's learning. He's in a learning process. To exclude him from school is to exclude him from society. And that's what happens to these kids. They're excluded from the real society and they have their own little world. And that's how they become gang members. And do you remember when you first came to London and realised that not everybody looks over their shoulder yeah. all the time? Yeah. That was news to yeah, you. Course, you yeah. were already nearly 30. Yeah, of course. Like I said, every day you come out your house, it's paranoia. Imagine you don't know what's going to happen. It's sh- like I said, there was three shootings a day. Usually, like where I was living and how I was living. Like I said, Mac tens, big gun, spitting fire. Brrr. You're in a car, you're going to the food shop. I've been going to the food shop and pulled up, and then someone just pulled up next to me, a shotgun in my face like this. Just luckily, I had the car in first. I took my foot off the clutch in the car, went forward. Or else my brains would have probably been on the passenger seat. You understand it? I've seen people dead. I've seen people just on the floor and he's got shot in his neck. So. As the heart's pumping, the blood just pumping. I've seen a film, this is real life, and it was a goalie way, so the goalie way just filled up with blood. So why did you just stand up and stood over him? And that's his game over. This is what I grew up in. This is probably sound like a movie to you, but this is my reality. You understand it? Like, and like I said, being beat down by my own friends, but my loyalty, so. I, I, it's, it's, it's loyalty, so I, I just take it as you come stand there. Like I said, I wasn't knocked out of nothing, I just stood there and took it because this was normal. Like I said, I wasn't watching people get beat up and mashed up over nothing for years, but it's the game in it. And like I said, when you're young, you don't understand what's happening. But these guys like psychologists because they know how to play <coughs> mind games with all of these kids and bring them in and keep them in. So it's it's horrible situation for these kids to grow up in and for people to say, well, they've got choices. They haven't, they don't know no better. They don't know, they don't know about the choice and opportunity. Like I said, college was a reality, a reality for me. I didn't know how to conduct myself in college. I don't know how to. Like, I'm just learning how to conduct myself. Now, like I said, if somebody says the wrong thing to me, it's usually turn up the face and smash them. That's what it is, isn't it? That's, what, that's my reality. You have to do that just to survive where I come from. You either have to be hard or you're going to be walked all over. And that's the reality for a lot of these kids. So when you see them on the corner and you, they're lost, that's the truth of the situation. A lot of these kids are just lost and they, all they need is some guidance. From other and when did you first see a gun, Dylan, or when did you first? I seen guns when I was young, like I said, when I was still in school, so when I was 12, so before then I've always seen guns and violence and this and that, that was a normal thing. Like I said, these gangs have been running for 20 years in my community. I'm 32 now, so when I was 10, 11, 12, like, that was what was going on, that was the norm, gang banging, and that was it, gang banging, thieving, drug dealing. Only people I've seen with money, really, unless I went somewhere, I, like, I didn't understand how other people got money, the only people I've seen, like, with cash, Money, live cash was the drug dealers. Like I said, my mum went to work every day. She struggled. She's laying up nothing. She's been working all my life. She's laying up nothing. You know, she just pays the bills and goes through. For me, that ain't, that ain't life. That ain't living. Like, what we, these guys ain't doing nothing all day. They just all they do is do their little peddling, do their little job pushing in there. Having a great time, like taking holidays, taking trips. Like, so what would you do? Go to college? Or would you want that fast money? And the thing about it is, when you get that fast money, it's as addictive as the drugs. You understand it because it's a lifestyle that you maintain and keeping up, and it's all in my reality now that I've come to realize like having like making two thousand pounds in like a, in, in a day is not a reality that everybody has. But where I come from in the hood, these kids can really do that if you understand. It needs to stand on the corner, and there needs to be like all right, there was a road, there was a corner, and you just stand on the corner and sell drugs. Police ain't fucking with you, and like I said, in my area, if the police told us it's in their best interest for the gangs to continue because we put something on YouTube and says, please, young men, stop gang banging, stop the shooting. Their response from the police was take it off the internet because we want to keep, we want to stay in business. That's what they told us. So, like I said, we're in a bad situation. Like I said, we have, and you feel it. You can feel the pressure from everybody. You understand it? Like all of the outside influences. You've got all of these people gain taking. Like in my community, three hundred and what was it? Three hundred and something million was spent on gangs. The zero effect. We made this documentary, and it was people from the community. 
and we don't really have a gang problem in our community at this present moment after the documentary, and that's the truth of the situation, but there's still the other things that are happening, the drug dealing, the robbing, mm-hmm. all these things are still going on, like Zimbo says, when you watch the documentary, I understand what I'm saying, but these are problems that all of us can help and contribute to try and, to try and, to try and change. Because if we make these kids understand, when you see them on the road, don't look at them and feel, oh my gosh, grab your bag and all of this, speak to them, engage with them, they're just normal people, they just don't know no better. And if you can show them right now, there's, there's, there's many things you can do out here, there's many options and choices, but they just need to hear it and be shown it and pushed in that direction. Maybe we can just accumulate questions if you... My question is gone now. I just wanted to tell you of a foster carer for teenager and what foster caring aims to to show young people a good, healthy family life. Mm -hmm. And that often helps the young people to maybe make better choices. But what I realise now here in London, we have more money for that to recruit foster carers to, to help the young people well then Birmingham probably spends much less money on, on social services now, it's, it's very true it's very true what you're saying like I said it's all about the environment that you yeah. grow up in if you don't have that you don't have that male there to show so it's all about the environment you grow up in. If you don't have a male role model and these men are looking to be men, a woman can only raise you. And I'm not going to say these women don't do great jobs because, like I said, they still do great jobs. But it's the fact that as a man, you want to know how to be a man. Yeah. We think differently. Biologically, we think differently from women. You understand it? So it takes a man to raise a man. That's the truth of the situation. Richard and I disagree about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're a mad senile old woman. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, so after the documentary when you met Shabba, mm-hmm. how did that filter out within the rest of the gangs? Because you said that the gang problem's gone down a lot now. So in terms of the effect, like the ripple. What was the ripple effect at first? We were targeting me and Shabba. What the hell are you lot talking about? How can you go against the green? So for a long, very long time, and people <coughs> ages, like I said, a lot of people's Sorry. <laughs> yeah, for a very long time. I mean, after, after me and Shabba made that announcement to the gangs and to the people in our crews, we became the target. What are you talking about? So for a minute, we was the focus. It wasn't about the gangs. It was, what are these two doing on both sides of the town? Do you understand it? But after a bit, everybody knows better. Like I said, got, like I, said I got friends in the grave, in the grave, skeleton bones. I got friends doing life 35 years. Do you understand it? So we all know better. None of us want to end up in that situation. And I have children, and most of the guys have children. So as you grow older, you're thinking, how much of this can I take? Like, I'm, I want to see my kids grow. So for a lot of the older ones, it was kind of like, all right, all right, D-boy, let's see what you can do. You do your thing. Let me see what's going to happen. But for the younger guys, they're thinking, nah, because this is the only way they're going to get stat- status. They're not going to be nobody unless they kill somebody or do something. That's how these kids see it. Unless they do, so- like, how are we going to get our status now? What are you doing, D-boy? How can you stop us from being somebody? Do you understand it? But with time, people have changed and their mentalities have changed. And like I said, we have, we have, we have, we have a program that we call One Mile Away in Birmingham. It, it's doing, it's doing its little thing, like I said. And it, we, have, we mentor children and we try and push them in the right direction. But the gang problem, like I said, gangs are still there, but we're just not killing each other. Like I said, people realise we're only cutting ourselves short and nobody else. Like I said, for the police, it's their best interest to have the gangs running. That's what they get funded for. Where I come from, there's a thing called gang police. 
these people only deal with gangs, do you understand it? And that's what I tried to explain to the guys. What we're doing is keeping them funding. So if these people, you see these people as your enemy, what you want to stop doing is making them get the funding because without, without the funding, they can't function. So that's kind of how I play the mind game with them. But my agenda is just to stop the whole thing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> there's a question right at the back, and then there's another one here. Maybe we can take the two together. Sure. This Hi. So you said you grew up in an environment without any family surrounding you. Um, you were 12 years old. You were looking for role models. And uh, my question is, to which extent did the media, did entertainment, I'm talking about hip-hop, I'm talking about music, I'm talking about films, to which extent did they provide role models and uh, to which extent do you think they kind of glorified a certain lifestyle that you chose to pursue as well. Was that an influencing factor? Or would you say that it's just a symptom of the problem of gangs? It's definitely a fact. It's definitely, it's definitely, definitely a factor. Like I said, I can, I can relate to the rappers. <laughs> that was, that's the thing. <laughs> it's definitely influencing factor because you can relate to the rappers. They're rapping about that lifestyle that you live in. And you're thinking, hold oh, on, it's a reality. But the reality that they show on television is wrong. And you have to understand, for a young black man, that's all the images on pumped. You can be a drug dealer, you can be this, you can be that. There's no, you, you listen to all the music that you see from black people, like from these rap artists and the ones that are, the music that's allowed to get into the mainstream, it's all negative. So you have to understand there's a bigger agenda and there's something going on here because I don't hear it coming from the white culture, I don't hear it coming from the Indian culture, I don't hear it coming from Chinese, the Asian culture. It's just black kids and it's folk and like a lot of these kids are in the bad situations and they're looking for the role model and then they give them the 50 cents, they give them the Rick Rosses, they give them all of these things. I spoke to a child this week and I said, well, do you want to be like what do you watch what do you want to watch what do you, what do you aspire to be in life the man said 50 cent so you have to understand these images and these things have they play a big part in the way these kids are thinking and the life that we live um, this one here is probably going to be the end I said, yeah no I want it to be 50 cent as well you're right um, good to see you again um, just uh, the question about um, where women fit into this young adult women because um, throughout the presentations there was mainly uh, men, um, I've been working with someone who works in Berman as well, uh, who actually said there's a new young and upcoming woman who's kind of leading a mixed gang, bank gang as well. But because a lot of the services aren't really geared to working with young adult women, it's almost like a missed thing. So I just want to see where women uh, fit into the picture. I mean, women are p part of it. You know, the the. The, the people on the streets are the men, but women hold weapons for people and also drugs. I mean, people are colluding with it. So although the women aren't directly involved, they also very, uh, you know, participate and, and collude. And I think probably you'd confirm this, like people are going, oh, I don't want you to do this and that, but I need money for whatever. And the money is clearly coming from the criminality so it's really important but actually you know in, in Birmingham I know very few women because I was with the men and people don't really socialise that much you know so it's like people have their partners or baby mothers or whatever you know who they go back to late at night but hanging around in the day it's, it's pretty separate actually and, and in, in a way Bex and me who were the two we were the only two women very often always actually in the room so I think it's something that absolutely needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed in, in a very particular way because as Dylan was saying if the girls are finding those guys 
attractive and let's face it I think most of the women in this room we would have to admit that at certain time that bad boy thing is very appealing you know <laughs> and uh, it's like it's, you know so you're perpetuating that in in a way and and actually the other thing is that the the car that the guy's driving is probably a rental and maybe he's got a big chain but you go to people's houses they haven't even got a fork in there you know so it's all front and really the people who actually make money out of it because we've often said if you maybe you're making two thousand pounds a day and then you go to prison for 10 years how does that pan out you know nobody has a house because you can't buy a house really with with that kind of money so it's all spent on very superficial things and and unfortunately you know women and I include myself you know are are definitely part of 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 kind of you know being sucked in by something that's very false really well like I had I'm going to tell the truth like like Penny said it's attractive to the women but Sometimes when shit hits the fan, sorry to put my language, but when shit hits the fan and people and people are shooting at your house and all them kind of things, like they don't like, you understand it. They'll, it's for me, it'll be protection. I'm not going to have them involved in that world properly, like have everybody know my baby mothers or where they live or what's going on or whatever. Not so they stay away from it. But I had a conversation with my baby mother this week, literally, and she says to me because I'm finding it kind of difficult to survive at the moment because, like I said, films it's up and down. She says to me, "Why don't you sell drugs? Why don't you go back to selling drugs?" That's what she said to me. Like I said, this is the reality of it. Like they are attracted to that's what they like that's probably why I attracted them you win the game you can make money you know how to make fast money you can buy bullshit but like I said like Penny said superficial stuff the money comes and goes most of the women they don't get involved in actual violence and whatnot. but like I said they will hold the drugs for you they will hold the guns for you they will be there to like, support you in the night time when you're feeling a bit depressed that's the only person you can talk to because everybody else is hyper masculinity I'm a tough guy kind of thing that's only that's when you go home to the women that's your kind of little nest out haven where you know that you looked after and that but as for the streets directly been on the streets the women, it's not. I wouldn't. I, like as a man, you wouldn't involve your your lady in that kind of stuff. And if she's a real lady, she wouldn't want to be involved in that stuff. But they do like all the money and all the little extras that come along sometimes with it. Top that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't attempt to to top that. But I find it interesting because periodically there are there are media scares, aren't there, about so-called girl gangs? There was quite a big one in the British press in the mid nineteen nineties. Um, I find it interesting as a historian because you see traces of this in Manchester in the late 19th century and there are young women involved in gangs and they tend to be mill workers and they're working together, they're socialising together, they're moving around the city in, in big groups, they have a kind of way of entering into the street life of the, of the city. I haven't found that in, in Glasgow and I think Glasgow is a more macho city than than Manchester, I think it's to do with traditions of work, the kind of work that historically men have done in shipbuilding, very kind of macho cultures around that. But one of the things that I found looking at the 20s and 30s is that the newspapers, if there was one thing that they loved more than a gang, it was a gang with a woman in it, mm. preferably a, a leader. And there are kind of legendary figures who, um, you know, they're, they're kind of still talked about in people's memoirs, two or three generations um, later but it's you know it's the odd woman who is notorious because she is permitted to behave like a man but I think if too many women of her acquaintance had had done that everybody would have had a problem with it including people in you know the gangs that they're associated with as much as the police as much as their as their parents the only cases I've ever found of parents testifying against their own children 
in court or when it's young women in the dark. And I think that does contrast, kind of square a circle and, and wrap up our session here with, with the media, particularly the kind of Hollywood and BBC, Peaky Blinders and so forth, portrayals of, uh, of women in, in film there. They're playing this very particular role, which you kind of touched upon a, a bit earlier, and certainly not this historical role. Um, of the kind of masculinized uh, uh, female role. And I think, speaking with a brief kind of academic hat on, I do think that the absence of women, and certainly in the contemporary um, work on, on, on gangs, um, is, it, it is quite damning, actually. And I think what we do need is, is very realistic accounts rather than these rather stereotyped accounts of women when they do come in. They're either written in occasionally as exceptions or as partners or if one was to get any sort of significant account for them at all um, but uh, they would be a, a, a peripheral character, a footnoting character somehow, a, a character to disbelieve that the researcher or, or the other has actually done some work with these people at all they're kind of bystanders to the situation but and what Dylan's suggesting is that there's a much more kind of mechanical role being played here and I think we need to sort of um, step up on that and, and, uh, and take it much more seriously anyway thank you um, audience um, firstly for uh, coming along and, and listening to uh, the two presentations really the three presentations I think uh, and therefore thank you to speakers uh, Dylan, Penny and Andrew uh, for their talk this evening Andrew's books are available